Well, good morning. Our preachers just kind of keep getting younger and younger. We had Rusty a few weeks ago at 40, and then, uh, then Jordan was last week at 26. Now we have me at 23. I don't know, Cam, Evan, Eric, does one of you want, want next go? No? Okay, well, then I think this is where the, the age dropping ends. Um, but before we get into the sermon this morning, I just have one quick announcement to make. Uh, VBS is coming up real quick. It starts not this Monday, but the following one, and we are still in need of some volunteers. Um, so if you are able to help out that week, I believe either leading um, some stations or even as group leaders, I think we still need a couple. If you could just talk to Angela after the service, that would be awesome. This is a great opportunity um, to serve as a church for the first time together in a really long time, um, and it's a great witness to our community. So if you have the time, we would love to have you help out with that. So let's just pray quickly, and then we will hop right into the message. Father, we're so grateful to be here today, um, to be back together in person, gathering um, as your body here, um, to worship you, to hear your word preached, um, and to fellowship with one another uh, in the common bond of the Spirit that we all hold. Pray that as I preach this morning, Father, that anything I say that is not true, uh, people would just forget that it would fall away, um, but anything uh, that they need to, to act on, to live out, that your Spirit would just convict them of that. Pray that you would humble me as I preach, that you would help me to be clear, um, that you would help us all just to honor and glorify you through how we approach your word this morning, um, and that you would just be working through each, working in each one of us uh, through your preached word. Amen. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Camp songs are really useful for one thing. That's the only reason that I have that list memorized. Though I imagine over the past few weeks, uh, some of you may have had an opportunity to start to kind of get that list down a little bit. We've been going through this series since the start of the summer, uh, going through each aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And the word aspect is really important because we're not talking about multiple fruits. I know Pastor Rusty focused on that a little bit in his first message, but it's worth talking about again when we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit we're talking about one fruit with many aspects. Think eating an apple, right? When you, when you bite in, there's obviously the sweetness, but there's also, you know, it's a little sour or tart. There's the crispness of the skin. There's the color of the apple. There's how the apple smells. There's all these aspects, but we're just talking about parts of one whole fruit. So this week, we're talking about the aspect of kindness. You know, the Bible has a lot of big churchy words, um, Think justification, sanctification, or if you're a theology nerd, probably a personal favorite, propitiation. And compared to these, kindness can feel really, really approachable, right? It's a word that we use pretty frequently in conversation, talking about people who are kind or who exhibit kindness. But we need to be careful about kind of bringing in our very simple, watered-down 21st century definition of kindness into the words of Scripture here. For those of you who get the weekly email, you'll have seen that I teased a little bit the fact that kindness in the Bible isn't as simple as, you know, holding the door open for someone or, or helping an elderly person cross the street. There's something more to it. Actually, the word that Paul uses here in Galatians 5, this Greek word, krestotes, is only used 10 times in the whole New Testament, and he is always the writer to use it. Um, and he actually has an even split. He uses it five times to talk about the kindness that God shows towards his people, and he uses it another five times to talk about the kindness that his people should 
exhibit. So I think what we can draw from that is that the kindness that we see here in Galatians 5 is the kindness that is a reflection of God's kindness toward us. So I think that makes us ask, what does God's kindness look like? And as I was trying to think of a good passage that illustrates the kindness of God, and and there are a lot of really good options, um, I landed on one in Philippians chapter 2, because I think the best way to understand what God's kindness looks like is to look at the one who reveals the Father to us, to look at Jesus. So we'll be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn over there. We're going to be talking about the kindness that we see in Jesus. And I'll be honest, um, I love the whole Word of God, but sometimes I kind of hate this chapter. I cannot think of verses that the Lord has more often used to convict me. They just kind of stick in the back of my head all the time when I start um, behaving sinfully. Just a few of these words that just kind of pound at the back of my head. And do not let me forget that that is not what we are called to. And I think the reason that this passage can grate against me from time to time is that it essentially tells us the exact opposite of what our culture does every single day, where our culture tells us that we should look out for ourselves and do what makes us happy, as Jordan talked a little bit about last week. Uh, The Bible, and specifically Philippians 2, tells us the total opposite, Um, whereas our culture essentially wants us to act like we are God's and that we are self-determining, and that we are worthy of anything that we can possibly grasp at. Philippians chapter 2 shows us that not only are we not God, but if we were, we'd be pretty crummy compared to the God who actually is. So just for a little bit of context, before before we hop in here, um, Paul writes the letter of Philippians while he's in prison. That's going to be an important detail in just a couple minutes. Um, And chapter 2 here begins right after Paul tells the people in the church of Philippi to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that's important as well. That's what he's building on as we hop in here to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as, as Paul starts writing here in Philippians 2, again, building on this idea of living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, he essentially starts to, to build an argument. 
Um, so he lists off four things that he expects any Christian, or he assumes any Christian will have experienced. So that's encouragement in Christ, right? Something that I think we're all pretty familiar with. Reading the word is full of encouragement. Comfort from love, comfort from other believers. Participation or fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And affection and sympathy. Again, Christian communal love. And so using those four things, he then kind of exhorts the people to complete his joy which is kind of a crazy statement. He's in jail, and what he's saying is, even though he's in a Roman prison, which is an awful place to be, his joy will be complete if the people obey these three little commands he gives, which are essentially to be a church that is united, right? And so speaking of these first two verses, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, wrote, Paul would have all God's people to be unanimous. He would have them think alike, That is the precise interpretation of the Greek. He would have them hold the same views, receive the same truth, contend for the same faith. He would have them as much alike in heart as in head. They are to be all found in the same love, not some loving the rest, but each loving all, and not even a single person exempted, every soul flaming with the sacred fire. He would have them knit together in every sacred enterprise, being of one accord, or as the Greek has it, of one soul, as though instead of a hundred souls enshrined in a hundred persons, they had but one soul incarnate in a hundred bodies. He would have all the people of God to be fused into one race, made to love each other, in fact, with a pure heart fervently. Now by this we may tell whether we are becoming like our Lord. So that's a pretty high calling, Right, right. Paul is telling believers, the church, us, to live in perfect unity. Um, and I think we're all pretty quick to acknowledge that that's not where we're at. And we have a lot of work to do, especially over the last year and a half. There have been a million things that have been divisive from politics to vaccines to silly feuds that have lasted 15 years because of unforgiveness. Right? Things come out of people where they are just not willing to be united with one another. Um, But that's not what Paul has in mind for the church. That's not what the Holy Spirit has in mind for the church. So how do we get to that point of unity? Uh, And what does any of this have to do with kindness? Because that's what we're supposed to be talking about this morning. Well, that continues in verses 3 and 4, where Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Anyone else kind of want to shift uncomfortably in their seats because of those verses? Right? You want to talk about something that completely rails against what our culture tells us to be and do? And, and, you know, let's be very clear. uh, This isn't good advice. Paul's not just saying, hey, it'll be better if you live this way. It is a command. It's a command from the Holy Spirit through Paul to live out Christian kindness that looks like total self-sacrifice in all of life. So in this little section, he gives three or maybe four specific commandments about what that looks like. So what do each of them mean? He says to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So don't do things to try to further yourself over others, right? Don't do things that, that push others down so that you can be elevated, um, Or don't do other things simply to get praise from other people. I think flattery is a really good example of that, right? You compliment someone in the hopes they will compliment you back. 
That, that's not being kind. It might look kind on the surface. Oh, I gave them a compliment, but you did it, hoping that they would encourage you back. Second command, count, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Ouch, right? Saying, look around, look at the people who you're surrounded with, uh, think of them all as better than you, right? Think of them all as being more important than you, their desires being more important than your desires, their wants being more important than your wants. That is incredibly difficult. That is something that is completely opposite to how we want to behave. But that's exactly what the Holy Spirit through Paul is calling us to. And his third command here, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I'm going to make that one uh, even a little more brutal than it already sounds. Um, that word only, let each of you look not only to his own interests. That's not there in the Greek. Translators add it to they believe to, to fully flesh out what Paul is saying. Um, I think wrongly. I think that what Paul is trying to say is, let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Stop caring about your own stuff. Care about others' stuff. Help others achieve what they want to achieve. Be willing to give up your interests for the interests of others. So those are all kind of painful, Right? Those, those go against basic sinful human nature. Those go against what our culture wants us to do. And um, I'm sure even as I read those, uh, there's things in my own heart that I'm going, oh yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing there, right? I'm, I'm thinking I'm more important than other people. Or, uh, you know, I'm thinking that my interests are more important than, than their interests. Um, but what a testimony this would be to the world if we actually lived this way, right? So as I was writing this week, I was trying to think, you know, what are some really simple ways that we do this. Because when, when we see biblical commands, it's not just about doing it in big things, right? This doesn't just mean that in huge areas of your life that you're doing this. It means in all areas. It means that in, in every little interaction, you are trying to live for the sake of others. So I was just trying to think like really practical everyday stuff. And so as a husband, the first one that came to my mind is coming home from work, plopping on the couch, you know, preparing myself to be lazy. And then my wife asks me to help with supper, or do the dishes, or take out the garbage. Basic response that I want to have is, I just worked all, like I had such a hard day at work, like you were at home all day, what do you even mean? What Paul expects is that I go, oh, absolutely, you know, my own interests don't matter. I then called my wife, and I said, hey, what, what are some ways as a wife that you feel that inclination to selfishness building up? And the example she gave me is, um, kind of doing a list of, of things to, to put them in your ledger so that when, you know, your husband is being a lazy butt, that you can say, well, look at all the stuff I do around the house. Like, you can do this one thing for me, can't you? But that is selfishness. That's seeking your own interests. What about for kids or teenagers? Uh, I'm not that much older than you. I only graduated from high school, like, five years ago, which feels a little crazy. Um, so I still remember that stage of life, and Honestly, the first one I thought of as someone who really loves technology is turn your phones off, right? Go spend some time with your family. Go spend time with your grandparents. Be willing to help out around the house without grumbling and complaining. Live out selflessness. And trust me, again, as someone who was there very recently and in some ways still acts like a teenager, uh, we are the ones who are most prone to that. We are really self-absorbed. So, you know, be intentional about it. What about singles? Uh, start 
pouring yourselves out for the sake of others, right? Bake cookies for a neighbor, I don't know, rake their leaves, offer to mow their lawn, just do things that show that you value your own free time less than serving other people. I was thinking too of, of those in maybe more competitive workplaces. Uh, it's not like, you know, in the church office that all of a sudden I'm going to get promoted and be the lead pastor and Rusty gets demoted. That's not the way things work here, so it's a little different, but maybe for those of you in more competitive work environments, this might mean letting yourself be ignored for a promotion, right? Because you know someone else needs that money more than you do. And that hits a little harder because, right, we're all very concerned about finances, but sometimes looking after the interests of others means being willing to go on a little less so that they have a little more to work with. And these are just some quick examples, right? I guarantee that um, this week and even this morning, uh, all of us have had hundreds of moments in which we have failed to do this well, in which we have specifically thought of what makes us comfortable, what makes us happy, and pretty much just said, I don't care about anyone else, I'm doing what I want, because I am God, right? I am who matters. Paul's an incredible persuader, so I think he sees that people are going to be upset about this. I'm sure there are some of you who are upset seeing that this is a biblical command. I, like I said, nearly daily these verses pop into the back of my head, and it upsets me, but it is good. Um, I think Paul sees objections coming, and so he just kind of sets up an argument that leaves no room for ifs, ands, or buts, and he does that in verses 5 through 8, where he writes, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus.'" who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, so what's his point? Uh, I'm calling you to live selflessly, Paul says. And for those of you who maybe might go in your head, well, you know, that's not for me. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a politician or, you know, I, I, I'm a CEO of a big company. You know, I don't need to do that. He goes, well, well, God did it. Um, so if you think that you're better than God and that you can not live selflessly, mm, probably not, probably not true. And so his argument is the reason we must behave this way is because it's exactly what Jesus did. And he had far more right to be selfish than we do. I don't think anyone's going to argue with that. I think God can do whatever he wants, and he chose to respond by being selfless. So this section, verses 5 through 11, uh, is often called the Christ hymn. Um, whether it is that Paul wrote this himself or that it was a song that churches at that time sang, uh, that's what it is. It's a song. It's a song worshiping Christ for what he did and for what God did as a result of that. So as we walk through it, I don't want this just to be a, a time of gaining head knowledge. This was a song of worship. So as we walk through the beautiful truths of these verses, I just want us all to pause, take a minute, and get ourselves ready to worship the God of the universe who selflessly showed us incredible kindness. So Paul says, To have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I think that phrase, form of God, it's a little weird. Some of your translations might handle it a little differently. But I think the best way to think about it is looking at the book of Colossians, uh, where Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, the, the exact imprint of the nature of God. Um, he makes the Father known. 
Yet, he did not grasp at the glory that comes with being God, right? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held for his advantage, uh, to clutch at for his own sake. Because this is kind of what Adam did. I think that's what Paul is trying to really allude to, is back in Genesis chapter 3, at the fall of mankind, um, Adam clutching at something that he shouldn't be. And I think this because uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. And he's, he's making the point that where Adam failed, Jesus didn't. And if you remember back to Genesis chapter 3, the way that the serpent tempts Adam and Eve is to say that if they eat of this fruit, they will be like God. And that's what they wanted. They wanted to be like God. And so Christ, even though he is God, didn't grasp at that position of glory that was rightfully his. Instead, he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. He succeeded where our first parents failed. Where Adam and Eve wanted glory and divinity, Christ gave up his glory for the sake of being kind to his people. After these statements, we kind of go on a, a progression of the humiliation of Christ. So Paul says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, so first of all, step one of the humiliation of Christ is he became a servant. I think, you know, that's a truth that, that we hear enough in church that it probably isn't this mind-blowing thing every time, but the eternal God of the universe, who I believe the book of Hebrews tells us holds the world together by the word of his power, became a servant. The one who is worthy of all service became a servant. That's humiliation. More than that, he took on human flesh, which he created. So he wore the flesh of his creation. And this might sound a little crass, but it's worth thinking about the God of the universe had to be sustained by food and had to go to the bathroom in order to continue to live. That's humiliating of an eternally self-sustaining and perfect being. And then more than that, he allowed himself to be taken by sinful people and killed. And, I mean, Paul raises the bar by pointing out that it's a death on a cross. So hung, completely naked, for everyone to see, on a hill walking into a major city, that's humiliating. He created the trees that were used to make the wood on which he was crucified naked. But this is how he showed us his kindness, by allowing himself to be brought to the, the lowest place. I think Paul is trying to say, Christ wasn't doing anything out of his own advantage, out of seeking his own advantage. He was seeking your good, church. He was seeking the good of everyone who has put their faith in him. And in verses 9 to 11, and again, let's just worship as we read these verses, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So humiliation first, and then glory. So to me, I, I right away think of the words from, Matthew, or from Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, where he says that the first will be last, 
and the last will be first. And yet, so much of what we want to do is to be first now, to have our way now, when our Lord exhibited a perfect life of deferring that for God's glory, as Paul says at the end of verse 11. And I think one of the passages that I think of when that comes up too is one that we read for the most part at Easter, um, but it fits in so well here. You want to see the ways in which Jesus was willing to give up what he wanted for the sake of others. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 44 says, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He gave up what he wanted. It, it's, it's clear, Jesus did not want to have to die, but he knew that he had to for the sake of showing self-sacrificial kindness to his people. And, as verse 11 says, this was all for the glory of the Father. So, Paul's argument here, just tracking the whole thing. So he says, to let your manner be worthy of the gospel. That's the end of chapter one. He says, the way that you do that is Christian unity, which is lived out in self-sacrificial kindness. And then, for those who are going to object, he says, okay, well, Jesus showed that, so there's your reason. And because Jesus showed it, God has exalted him. But he's not quite done. So then jumping into verse 12, he writes, therefore which is how we know he's continuing to build on what has already been said. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the therefore is linking this idea that, that because Christ was highly exalted, because he is the Lord over all, this is the way in which you must now live. But he presents us with a pretty big tension, right? And in those last two verses, if you're listening carefully, you'll catch it. Work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you. So who's working? We're going to come back and answer that question. But I've given you two hard challenges today, right? The challenge to Christian unity, super difficult. We've seen how hard it is over these times. And self-sacrifice in everything, in every little preference to defer to what others want. And both of these are related closely to kindness. I'm calling you to live this way. Paul is calling you to live this way. The Holy Spirit is calling you to live this way. But how are we enabled to do this? Right? Because we all see these verses and can identify a lot of places in which we aren't doing this and in which it will be very difficult to get to a point where we are. And I think the answer to that question is the same answer as every single element that we have covered in the fruit of the Spirit over this series. So how do I live out Philippians chapter 2? Well, it's the same way in which I live out those Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all that. I think the book of Galatians helps us to understand how we do that. So let's just go there for a minute. So the book of Galatians, um, 
pretty much the whole point of the book is that the law, a law of works, cannot bring about or add to salvation. That Christ brings freedom from a law of works. And so we see kind of Paul answering a question that he asks in Galatians 3, verse 3. It says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the answer is no, that, right? Having begun by the Spirit, we are perfected by the Spirit. And so as he continues then, we hit chapter 5, where the fruit of the Spirit are. But before the fruit of the Spirit, in verse 19, he talks about the works of the flesh. And then he contrasts those with the fruit of the Spirit. So one, the stuff in verse 19, some really gross stuff that none of us want to be doing, that's a work of our sinful human nature. That's our natural disposition. That's what we're going to do if left to our own devices. But the second set, the fruit of the Spirit, are the opposite of that. They are things not in ourselves, but they are things that are cultivated in us by the Spirit of God. But we really love being legalists. It's funny, I feel like, you know, church culture, we love to bash the Pharisees, but I think we so often are pretty much exactly like them, because uh, I'm super guilty of doing this, and I bet a lot of you are too. Uh, Galatians 5, you see the fruit of the Spirit, and you just make them into a little list with check boxes, right? Okay, yeah, I've, I've been loving enough lately. Um, mm, peaceful? Maybe not. Patient? No. Oh, but, but joy? Yeah, I'm doing great in that. And, and you start checking boxes, which is, is not the point. Um, and I get it, because I think a lot of us, myself included, and again, I'm not that old, we, we grew up in kind of a culture of teaching the Bible as just a book of, of morals, right? A book of, of how to live your life. And I think the, the biggest example of, of how stories kind of get weird because of this is the story of David and Goliath, right? Most of us have been taught the story as one about being brave and about facing our giants. Um, some of you might not agree with me or like that I'm going to say this, but this isn't what the story is about. The story of David and Goliath is a story of David, like Jesus, conquering the giant of sin, while we, like the Israelites, cower in our tents, unable to do anything. So much like this story, Paul is making the point that we can't create these positive characteristics in ourselves. We can't drum these up. We can't strive after being more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind. We're always going to fail. That's not in us, right? They're not the, the difference is the works of the flesh are these evil things, and it's the fruit of the Spirit that are good. So why even write it, right? I mean, why put this list in front of people that I think he's making the whole point throughout the book that they can't even possibly follow? And I think the word fruit that he uses gives us a pretty good hint. Um, I think it brings us back to John chapter 15, um, an absolutely beautiful chapter, and one that very much informs, I think, Paul's use of the word fruit of the Spirit. So John 15, verses 1 to 11, the words of Jesus. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. 
for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Branches are not the source of fruit, right? You cut off a branch, you throw it in the ground, nothing is growing from it. You take the branch off the vine, the vine can still produce more fruit. One needs one, the other doesn't need the other. We need the vine, the vine doesn't need us to bear fruit, right? We're, we're incapable of cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in our own lives. None of us will, will ever be able to live out any of the stuff in Galatians chapter 5 or anything from Philippians chapter 2 by our own strength. So why did I just preach this sermon, right? It might have kind of felt like two different ones. It might have felt like one longer sermon where I told you how the Bible tells you how to live, and then a second sermon where I pretty much said, eh, but you can't do it anyways. But that's where that tension from the end of the section in Philippians is so important. And from there, I'm just going to give you three really quick applications as we wrap up today, and I promise when I say we're wrapping up, I don't mean I'm going to preach for another 15 minutes. So, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So application one, work out your own salvation. Do everything in your power to pursue these things, right? Fight against the selfishness that you feel inside. Pursue love, pursue joy, pursue peace, pursue patience, pursue kindness with everything inside of you. But it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When you see actual growth in these areas, when you see that you're starting to live them out more, worship and glorify God. Because I promise you, it was not any of your fleshly work that brought those things about. And then third application, for those of you who are serious and want to see these things growing in your own life, for the sake of the glory of God, that's super important. Not just for the sake of being a better person or so that more people like you or so that your life is better, so that God is glorified in how you live. If you're serious about living these things out, the only way to do it is to abide in Christ, to fellowship with the Spirit, right? To know the Word of God, to spend time in prayer, in worship, in Christian community, to, to constantly go back to the vine, because apart from him, we can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are just branches, that we are not the source of our own goodness, that we are not the source um, of our own holiness, but that that is a work of your Son and a work of your Spirit. Thank you that uh, you are patient with us, even as we fail to live up to these commandments, even as we fail to be who you've called us to be, um, <laughs> that you're patient and that you are working and that we can rely on you for our sanctification. 
Father, help us not to strive after fleshly, um, momentary virtues, but instead to strive after spirit-fueled holiness. Um, Yeah, just teach us to rest more in your Son. Amen.